Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this special event recording, Andreas Kuhn of the Observer Research Foundation America joined Johanna Weaver and Jennifer Jacket to explore the ideas put forward in their recent paper from the QuadTech Network's QTN series. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Johanna Weaver. I've recently joined the Australian National University as the director of a new initiative here, the Tech Policy Design Centre. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to you today, the co-presenters um, of today's webinar. So we have uh, Dr. Andreas Kluhn, who's a senior fellow at, the, fellow at the Observer Research Foundation in America, where he leads research on international cybersecurity cooperation within the ORF's American Cyberspace Cooperative Initiative. His work focuses on the new risks and challenges in the international security at the intersection of emerging technology, cybersecurity and technology governance. And we also have with us here today Jennifer Jacket, who's a Sir Ronald Wilson Scholar and a PhD candidate at the National Security College. She is researching US-China competition for leadership over emerging technologies on the implications of that for US allies and partners. Um, we're going to throw um, first for a short introduction from Andreas, who's going to um, be introducing the paper that he co-wrote uh, with Trisha Ray uh, from uh, the Observer Research Foundation uh, in India. So, Andreas, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's late where you are, so we appreciate it extra more. Um, we'll pass to you uh, to give us an introduction uh, on the paper. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Joanna, and uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for being here today uh, to talk about uh, 5G uh, security in the context of the Quad. I'm, I'm delighted to be here um, and also be part of this initiative. Uh, it has been uh, fun and exciting and interesting to have contributed to the QTN, QTN series. Um, at this point, I also should acknowledge uh, my dear colleague, uh, Trisha Ray, uh, from the Observer Research Foundation uh, in, in New Delhi. Um, who have made significant contribution to this paper and has been a, a great co-author, uh, but unfortunately is not able to join us uh, join us today. So she will be uh, she will be missed. Um, uh, again, the, the paper I think five G. We all have kind of like I guess that's why we hear heard a lot about five G and some of kind of like the challenges around them in, in a geopolitical context. And I think that's where this where this paper um, is coming in. Um, so I think what we're trying to do in this paper is really to kind of like to argue um, and to identify kind of like the need, the, the, the needs uh, there, devise effective ways to kind of jointly manage uh, risks and strengthen the resilience of 5G components, domestic and foreign networks, 
in global supply chains, kind of an efforts that the Quad should undertake. Um, and we do this kind of like in, in, uh, in multiple parts. And I think I think it's also important to understand where this um, uh, paper fits in, uh, knowing that the Quad has been working on 5G, uh, identifying um, clear um, kind of low, if you want low um, hanging fruits to address 5G security. I think that's where we started with. Um, recognizing that the importance of uh, security uh, of the ICT infrastructure, in particular 5G, is important to kind of like, you know, benefit from uh, the, 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 the uh, tremendous economic, uh, but also social benefits that 5G and, and other emerging technologies uh, are um, promising. Uh, I think that's kind of like the starting point. And I think what we did, we kind of like try to uh, taking stock on some of the different policy measures that uh, that uh, different quad countries have been undertaking and, and kind of broadly categorized them along like five categories, such as uh, blocking high-risk vendors. We've seen like the U.S. taking a very elaborate and probably the most aggressive approach there versus um, other quad countries um, taking more like a soft, um, a soft ban, if you want, but nevertheless kind of a strict ban. Second category was about uh, leveraging procurement and, and security requirements. Kind of like what governments can um, regulate with when it comes to procuring uh, on the government side, but also introducing um, new security requirements um, uh, as, as part of that. And um, I think we have seen quite a bit of changes in kind of like the uh, the, the way how uh, procure, uh, procurement requirements can be leveraged to, to achieve that um, in, in all those countries. But also, for example, in the case of India, Kind of like a building into um, uh, needs uh, to kind of like procure made in India uh, technology. Um, 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 third, kind of like important part that we saw is the, in, in imposing um, carrier security obligations. So kind of um, on the on the side of the, uh, of, of the of the carriers who run 5G technology, who buy those technologies, um, what they need to um, have in place in terms of cybersecurity and supply chain security. I think one interesting part there, I was found that quite fascinating, is, is Japan's approach that basically give away for free um, a 5G spectrum in exchange to the promise that um, and their um, carriers are ab ab abiding to those cybersecurity requirements. Um, you know, in the US, the, the, those uh, spectrum allocation uh, auctions uh, kind of uh, came up to like about 80 billion US dollars in revenue for the state. And here we had like took a slightly different approach. Um, but, but also, there were other um, examples providing financial incentives to industry for secure 5G deployments that Japan and the US were taking to kind of like incentivize the development and deployment of secure. Um, of secure um, 5G solutions, but also in the, and last but not least, obviously uh, strengthening international cooperation as an important part that some of those countries already been undertaken outside of the Quad before. There's like an MOU between um, um, uh, Japan and India, for example, that also addresses 5G uh, cooperation security. Um, but obviously here, when you go to the later part of the paper to understand how we can um, how can how we can uh, you know build this up to to get broader on that, and I think the key part, and I think we'll we'll not go into much detail here because I know uh, Jen said she's going to uh, go look into this uh, in more detail later in the paper. Is kind of like uh, the risk and the resilience aspect of it. it we came up with fairly three simple um, categories: technical risk, uh, supply chain connectedness risk, and capability capacity risk as kind of a basis to talk about how 
risk could be managed and how, when it comes to recommendations, how this can be done uh, within the Quad individually as the, for those countries, but also but also together in, in a kind of a joint Quad effort. Um, I think I want to end here, but maybe also want to quickly note that the paper was written before the second Quad um, uh, summit, uh, held in September, like about a little bit more than a month ago. So it's interesting to see that some of those ideas that we had kind of were started materializing then there, also kind of recognizing what we really try to do in this paper is to come up with what are, you know, low-hanging fruits. Uh, they're obviously kind of like short-term and long-term um, recommendations and issues we can uh, we can work on. Uh, I think the paper really uh, tried to speak to kind of like those, those uh, what, what, what stability in the quad, what can the, the quad achieve in that regard uh, in, in the short term? I think um, that was kind of like the goal here. I'll, I'll stop here and uh, um, uh, does does that work for you, Jen? Yeah, that's great, Andreas. Thank you so much for that overview. I might start as well by offering some of my own reflections in response to the overview provided, and then we can start to unpack perhaps a bit of the points of analysis. So I think, as we all know, 5G communications infrastructure will form the backbone of the modern digital economy, which your paper points out and it will enable vast improvements in network speeds and support the connectedness of countless devices through the Internet of Things and also new applications like self-driving cars. I think in that context, this paper makes a really important contribution to public policy debates around the constructive role that the Quad can play in the sort of economic opportunities as much as the security um, that we can find in 5G networks at a very critical time in the rollout and deployment of this technology worldwide. As you mentioned, since the paper was written, we've also seen the leaders level Quad Summit in September, and it was very clear there that 5G and secure, open and transparent 5G was very much a priority for all countries and something that they're going to be pursuing through the critical and emerging technology working group. I think as part of their communique, they said that they wanted to pursue um, opportunities like open radio access networks, which we'll talk a little bit later about in the discussion. And they also flagged that cooperation with with the private sector was key, which is another theme uh, we'll come back to. So I think in the context of where the Quad is going, your paper really helps to put some meat on the bones in terms of actionable and practical policy recommendations that Quad countries could really take forward um, to implement their 5G agenda and indeed even extend it to other countries in the Indo-Pacific and beyond over time. So before we get to some of those practical recommendations, it might be useful to take a step back to some of the sort of geostrategic and contextual factors that are driving quad cooperation in this area. So the first issue I wanted to ask you about is the geopolitical dimensions of 5G security. What is the current sort of geopolitical context around 5G, especially from the context, from the perspective rather of quad countries, and why is 5G actually significant in geopolitical terms? I think that's a very, very good and I think fundamental question. I think, um, I think it comes down to to a particular moment in time where we are in right now, right? Kind of like this convergence of different technologies, uh, recognizing the importance of emerging and critical tech for all kind of applications that that you mentioned before, and I think. 5G is is kind of like one of them, but I think in, in many ways it's also enabler of them because many other technologies 
AI, uh, cloud computing, IoT, uh, other applications we build on top with some of those other technologies really will rely on, on 5G, right? So um, I think that's that's why we, from a technical perspective, think that it, that that the 5G is important, right? Uh, but I think the conversation, while you know, when you think about a few, you know, in the beginning, I think this was much more focused on 5G um, as as an issue that needs to be solved. I think in the interim, you know, we have seen kind of the the, the shift, if you want, uh, to kind of a broader broader perspective on on not only five G but critical and emerging technology. I think which really needs to be recognized, and countries have come forward with, like you know, Australia is one of the uh, it's one of the leading examples, and I know Joanna has been working on that over the past few years uh, of coming up with strategies to actually address that. So I think that it's not only uh, a one a one issue thing that is 5G, it's a broader set of issues that need to be addressed. And I think 5G, I think it's just the most prominent one. It's the, the one that that kind of like uh, was at the forefront of this. Um, there is, as you said, um, an economic driver behind that, right? Kind of this understanding that if we innovate, if we invest in 5G, if we come up with new applications, this will have tremendous economic benefits. I think that's that's one one part. Uh, but there also this this kind of idea about, uh, and that's a little bit less my strong suit. But kind of when it comes to defense and military applications, also there the question is like we need to uh, have this five G uh, for warfighting capabilities, even if we you know kind of depend on five G infrastructure that that might be um, you know deployed by or, or or deployed in like what what the military or DoD calls uh, gray or red zones, right? So kind of how can we come up with with uh, approaches to 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 operate in such an environment uh, when 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 uh, when some of the infrastructure might be might be com- compromised, um, so I think that those are those kind of like that's part that's part of that's I think part of that answer, um, and you know I think in the beginning this was a, a more narrow discussion about technical security, which I think at least that's how I started with that. I think it, it pretty quickly for most observer um, became clear this is a, a broader question. It doesn't, maybe at this point, it's hard to make an argument. This is this uh, question could be solved if we could completely um, address uh, technical or cybersecurity, which which we cannot, right? That's that's part of this, uh, that's part of this game. There is no 100% assurance that that this will, this will, uh, will, will be secure 100%. Uh, but we can do things to make things more secure, and I think that's uh, that's an important aspect to recognize. As as this is not only uh, I think there's uh, this big, um, uh, you know, the the, the ori- origin of the technology and whether or not that that uh, is an important aspect of whether or not it's secure. I think we should have strict and and possibly high um, security requirements for the technology as well as for the supply chain. Um, uh, that that applies across all vendors, uh, but I think again, originally it's kind of like this conversation between uh, you know China China based vendor versus uh, versus non China based vendor, and, uh, and and a host on other pol- policy issues uh, or political issues, and, and also geostrategic tensions uh, that kind of inform that debate. And I know we could have a very long conversation about how this all fits together, but I think it uh, I think I'll I think I want to stop here because I don't want to go, go what I don't want don't want to. Uh, uh, take host this this conversation on those things, but um, obviously it's important to also recognize that um, that um, you know 
the different countries, and I think we, maybe we can come back to this a little bit later, when it comes to the Quad, uh, they come up with different policies. I mean, there's definitely certain shared interests, uh, no questions when it comes to uh, perceived security threats from China, uh, but different countries have different uh, abilities to, to deal with them. Um, you know, when you think about the U.S. has been uh, doing this for a long time, um, their reaction uh, and response to the 5G question um, has, uh, has has been prolonged, if you want, with with uh, very sophisticated and very holistic um, um, responses on all fronts. You know, when you go through all the laws that have been passed, new institutions have been proposed uh, to address that issue um, that is a different animal, if you want, than compared to some of the other countries. You know, Japan was pretty swift in their response and short, it seems, in comparison. Um, so I think you see that have different, maybe different tastes, how also big actor engage in, in, in those conversations and their ability to manage some of those expectations. Yeah, fascinating. There's a lot of different issues there that I'm keen to unpack further. I guess just on the geopolitics of it, it really does seem like 5G in and of itself is significant given the economic and security dimensions, but also in that broader context of this contest for technological leadership that we are seeing unfolding, especially between the US and China, but perhaps between China, the US and its partners more broadly, that 5G really does seem to be one of those significant um, areas that could have ripple effects for other technological dimensions as well. Um, just coming back to areas of risk, perhaps before we get further into the approaches of different quad countries, I think it was a really important point you raised around the fact that some of the early decisions, and we saw this in Australia's decision in 2018 to exclude high-risk vendors, the focus was very much on um, vendors as the way to mitigate risks. But I think your paper really makes clear that even with certain vendors excluded, there are still a number of areas of risk that need to be managed going forward, especially in relation to cybersecurity. And you do point out the technical risk, the supply chain risk, and the capability and capacity risk. Perhaps you could talk a little bit more to those dimensions of risk that countries will still need to grapple with within the Quad, even where they have excluded high-risk vendors from their networks. Yeah, I'm more than happy to uh, do that and, and go into a little bit more detail of, of those different categories. I think, you know, in the beginning, the framing of, of why it's risky it becomes from a certain country. I think seems problematic because the, the risk assessment from a technical perspective, right, um, it shouldn't matter where something is coming from, but it should be about the engineering, it should be about the the, the secure the secure the secure development processes and the quality controls in place to ensure that uh, software, hardware, products and so forth are are developed in a, in, a, in a secure way. I think that's one part, but the other part also then comes down to um, how how do things are deployed, right? Um, do the people uh, or the organizations that are deploying um, those new technologies um, have the the knowledge, the capacity to to do this securely, right? And so I think there, there are multiple factors at play. I think for one, we have a novel technology, right? I think whenever we have something new, we we might not know certain risks that come with them in terms of its if uh, in terms of its 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 deployment. Um, and, um, what do we need to know? What do we need to address? Um, that often takes time. I think we see this in other types of, of, of technologies. Uh, technologies tend over time to become better and more secure. Um, 
I think that's one part. The other part is is uh, kind of like this new uh, the creation of all this new interconnectivity, right? We we, we connect many more devices that have new forms of interactions uh, that uh, they also create new interdependencies uh, if we if you think of of you know certain services that are, that are deployed uh, build on others and out of a sudden um, something maybe breaks um, you know for whatever reason or is hacked or whatsoever um, then uh, you you might up with interruption that have not been uh, you know experienced before because we kind of like form kind of like new interdependencies because of building building technologies on top. So I think that's kind of like the general idea that, you know, if we just focus on particular vendors, we might not do ourselves a, a good service. I think we should uh, raise kind of like the security requirements across all, uh, across all, um, you know, players, if you want, right? Uh, with with different players, you know, um, operators, uh, vendors, to, to some degree users, after accountability, you need to do the right thing to to get to the point. Um, let's briefly talk about those so those three uh, risk categories. I think there's one like a, a kind of like classical one, the the technical risk, um, um, you know, risk inherent to five G um, architecture and protocols. Um, I think that's what I what I talked before earlier. Um, kind of like the but also the idea that uh, that kind of like the core and the edge of the network. Uh, is not so, as separate anymore as it used to be in earlier um, um, uh, the communications uh, gener tele telecommunications uh, gener te technology generations. Um, and so that has implications that we need to understand and need to be addressed. Um, I think that's one part of that. I think you also mentioned um, uh, ORAN or Open Radio Access Network as an example before, as another uh, as another way to maybe address some of those issues when it's specific to a vendor. Um, in this particular case, we, we can virtualize uh, certain services that before were hardware-based uh, through a general purpose um, technology or computing technology, which then would allow new vendors come in, develop new technologies and so forth, um, which addresses some other issues we talked about earlier. But again, it's new technology. It might, might uh, come up with new challenges that need to be addressed through the technology, but also the integration of many different vendors. Um, supply chain and connectedness risk, um, I think all through COVID, we all experience what it means uh, outside of the 5G domain, right? Um, there are bottlenecks when it comes to suppliers, bottlenecks when it comes to um, uh, all type of inputs uh, along the supply chain. Uh, we have seen, particularly in the COVID-19 context, kind of the weaponization of, 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 of trade uh, to kind of like further political, political goal. You know, you can think about like a scenario where something like that could be the case also in the 5G context. I think in some, in some sense, it's the U.S. response to some of them kind of like curtailing access to, to, uh, to, to uh, the Chinese company is in some ways, uh, you know, is kind of like a, a similar mechanism that could could deploy, could de could be deployed in, in in such a way in, in a trade representation context. Um, then I think that the an important part that I think we have not really talked about as much. I think the the first two categories are probably more clear, or we often talk about is really kind of like do we have the capability and capacity to manage risk in this in this new context, right? Do we have the institution built up to do that? And again, this is about um, you know kind of like do all the the, the people deploying five G um, are they up to code? Are they do are they are they following best practice? 
And you know, you, you can think of like large um, ICT companies, uh, sorry, sorry uh, telecommunication providers that know how to do this and are on top of their game. But you all, we also have like a lot smaller com uh, telecommunication service providers or carriers that that, um, that 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 might have more difficulty to to adjust to that, particularly in the beginning. We we see new deployment scenarios, five uh, G for five G networks. Right before we we had like mostly carriers providing communication services with 5G. There are scenarios where a university or or a stadium might operate their own 5G networks. Um, do they have the capacity to manage the risks, uh, for example? So that's one of the questions. Um, but I think an interesting point, and I think I mentioned that earlier, is, is also on a on an international um, political um, uh, diplomatic level, right? Um, uh, do we have people in state departments in Ministry of Foreign Affairs who speak 5G and cybersecurity to talk about uh, issues around norms, uh, for example, uh, to have those conversations? I think that uh, we, we have seen that in the, in the context of um, uh, of uh, uh, the um, of uh, clean uh, clean network initiative, for example, bringing up those issues to partners and talk about that, not from a technical perspective, but 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 in a political context. And I think that's also kind of like part of this cap capacity and capability risk uh, that needs to be addressed. And in terms of those three areas of risk, which I thought was a really useful way of framing what the issues are, coming back to how Quad countries actually assess these risks, is there um, much alignment or perhaps even areas of divergence between the Quad countries? Because I guess it's how these nations view things from a technical perspective and what the appropriate mitigations might be that actually lend itself to closer cooperation or not. So in that stock take that you did, which was really helpful, what's the state of play across the Quad countries and the level of commonality between them? That's a good question. You know, I think when I think about kind of risk assessment, I I, I, I try to kind of like looking for I'm looking for a table, right? That kind of like really spells out what those risks are and 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 how they how they are assessed and what the potential impact is, as well as how they're mitigated, right? And um, in an earlier version of the paper, you know, we we try to kind of find those uh, four different quad countries, um, and that's unfortunately you know not necessarily a public uh, in the public domain. On on the there's general general risks. You know that that we often talk about, you know, um, but but kind of like more specific risks um, or frameworks are, are maybe a little bit less available, uh, which would have been interesting to actually kind of better understand, you know, um, or, or policy statements are available, right? Kind of like while something is risky, we don't want, for example, foreign interference in in our net critical uh, infrastructure network or 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 foreign interference in in our political processes or into society, right? Um, but kind of like, so I think more high-level uh, statements are available. But kind of some of the uh, the detail why certain decisions were taken, maybe how this could be addressed, we didn't really find them, which would have been helpful to maybe understand why um, uh, why um, you know certain measures were taken. I think in, in in some ways the measures that were taken largely also reflect the. Uh, legal and regulatory authorities that countries have available, right? Um, I think in the U.S., when you, when you, again, there are many, many laws have been passed, many, many uh, regulatory decisions uh, have been taken. When you go through that, it's quite interesting. It's almost like an archaeology of, of, of the regulatory state uh, and its powers to kind of like address those issues. And I think that that was fascinating. So I think, you know, 
we, we try to kind of like compare um, kind of the measures that have been taken um, with those kind of five main categories, right? Kind of like the, that I mentioned at the very beginning, the blocking high-risk vendors, leveraging procurement security requirements, imposing carrier security obligations. And I think those were, those are kind of very common. I, I think they are all in, in their different flavors. I think that's a kind of like a natural, natural way to regulate technologies and maybe also similar things that states have done in the past. Um, where we found differences, I think later in the game, you know, the U.S. also brought in um, um, kind of like financial incentives to foster um, local um, secure 5G development, particularly with, with ORAN, uh, but also put aside uh, some uh, some money in the, what is called the multilateral telecom fund to kind of uh, foster international cooperation uh, in that space. Um, and in the case of, of Japan, um, they put aside, uh, made some tax incentives available also, again, with the idea to foster secure development. And I think here in the case of Japan, and I think that's also true, I think, in the case of the U.S., there is there a clear economic incentive uh, for for the uh, national industries who are leaders in this in this space to kind of, like, uh, come up with solutions. The U.S. so far has no, has no uh, provides 5G components to, but doesn't have, like, you know, a, a, Ericsson or Nokia or, or Samsung, for example, stations, um, uh, as compared to, to uh, uh, Japan that has uh, kind of local players there. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think that leads nicely into the second substantive part of the conversation, which is really around how the Quad countries can work more closely together on 5G issues. And this gets to really the heart of what you're proposing in your paper. So I might ask you to just very briefly give the high level summary of those recommendations. And then I'm really keen to unpack those, especially for policymakers listening in so they can understand how to operationalize some of these ideas mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah, happy to do that. And I think, again, as I said before, you know, we, we, we kind of like finished that up before the, the Quad Summit. So it's, I can't claim that they took all this from our paper, but there are obviously some, some commonalities, which is, which, which is good to hear. Sometimes wonder, oh, maybe we have not been forward thinking enough that they addressed uh, quite a few of them. But but then I think in, in, in essence, right, it, it, uh, we, we came up with like five um, key recommendations that, that we felt are, are, are pretty kind of like 
uh, are immediate or need, need to be addressed. So uh, one is kind of the, the need to conduct a joint risk assessment of 5G supply chains, including scenarios for common threat vectors uh, and define uh, mitigation measures for vendors and operators. Um, a second recommendation was uh, to define common standards uh, uh, for what trustworthy behavior should look like for 5G vendors and equipment providers. This uh, in the context of like how what is trustworthy, which is kind of like as we talked about earlier, uh, just the uh, the origin uh, of a product or of a vendor where someone is based might be not good enough. And I think we we've seen that in the solar winds. Uh, um, incident in the U.S. that, you know, the, if a trusted vendor is compromised, uh, then this is problematic. So I think there's also like this move in the cybersecurity discussion towards zero trust, right? Kind of like the, the need to do an ongoing continuous verification uh, of, of of technology to, to uh, ensure um, uh, its security. Um, Establish a 5G agenda for the Quad uh, under the uh, Critical and Emerging Technologies Working Group. Uh, I think that seems to be straightforward. Looking at the statement that came out uh, on the on September 24th, I think that's that's I think on on its way. Uh, but we have not heard too much details about how how that looks like. And if if you actually have more insights into that, I'm I'm curious to hear if if you, if you heard any more details on that. Um, the fourth uh, is the recommendation with regards to coordinate policy uh, priorities in international forums on ICT securities and standard setting. Again, here kind of like UN cyber norms, um, cyber stability, um, responsible behavior, responsible, responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Um, is there something that can be done, but also more on the technical side, um, uh, technical standard setting. Um, often there's always this point to China that that, that allegedly kind of like has been maybe um, uh, kind of um, playing the process towards their towards their benefit. And so the question comes up, oh, could could and should um, 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 like minded states, um, you know, maybe take a page from that book and see maybe we should talk and have coordination meetings and talk about what, what could be done in that field. And, and, and five is kind of the, the need to build a multi-stakeholder 5G resilience alliance. And here again, like on one side, kind of the um, the emphasis on 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 on, on multi-stakeholder, the uh, emphasis on beyond the quad. Right, this is an, an effort that that needs to be broader than just the quad. And also again, it's about resilience. So how can we move the conversation from just security to resilience? Because you know things will happen. Uh, you know that's what security is about. It's never 100%. But the question about how we can respond to that and happy to talk to resilience a little bit more later but i think that's why uh why we felt uh, strongly about talking about resilience in the broader context beyond the quad fantastic i'm conscious that time seems to be getting away from us so i'm going to ask one question that i think uh is essential to all of those recommendations before i throw back to johanna and the audience questions my question is really around the, the role of private industry in all of these initiatives i think we've seen a strong emphasis on public private cooperation uh, by quad leaders and in the australian context there's actually been a lot of work done over the last five years or so to establish very close relationships between relevant cyber agencies in government and private owners and operators of critical infrastructure to try and mitigate some of these risks. How do you see private industry being a partner in some of the ideas that you've put forward? I think that's a very good question, right? Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, this technology is, is mostly operated and bought by the private sector. 
Um, I think it's clear that government, you know, is there to say to to kind of like set certain, you know, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, guidelines. You know, uh, policy guidelines. Uh, how how the playing field is, should look like. But then at the end of the day, um, it's it's the private sector that uh, develops these technologies, that uh, that uh, deploys those technologies, that also should uh, ultimately secure those technologies. Um, I think it's their responsibility, and so I think that's why uh, the, the, the 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 private sector has been front of center in those developments and and in those conversations. Um, you know, I, I think we have seen a lot of uh, good points around how governments can set um, incentives for private sector to then do certain things, right? Um, um, and and I, I'm still at times, you know, while there certainly are, you know. Uh, Within the Quad, uh, corporate, corporate, different corporations collaborating on on um, on five G developments. Um, uh, you know, Japan, US semiconductor field related to to five G. This was one example. Um, you know, how, how kind of how much can that be steered by just governments setting um, certain targets or providing certain certain financial incentives? So I think that's why. Uh, understanding how those environments look like is an important part of the governance to be able to actually come up with 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 good measures uh, and uh, moving forward this conversation but in order to do that this can again only be done in close cooperation uh, with with the private sector and they're also key to the idea that you have around engagement in standard setting organizations to in fact industry really leads a lot of the engagement in some of those bodies like 3GPP, for example. Yeah. All right, I'll go back to Johanna now to ask some audience questions. Thank you, Jen. Um, so uh, if you have a question, please um, raise your hand or pop it into the chat and um, we will um, uh, uh, call on you. Um, we have um, one question that has come through, which I think is actually um, uh, deceptive in its simplicity, um, Andreas, so stand by. Um, but it is a question about what does um, the 5G discussion, and particularly I think when we talk about the security dimensions, the economic dimensions, and we talk about um, 5G as being the critical infrastructure of critical infrastructure, but what do these discussions actually mean when it comes down um, to uh, the average, um, the, the question that's been put um, by Dr. Amanda Watson is to the average mobile phone user. But I might expand that and say, why is this an important question for citizens, for the, the average person on the street? Why should we care about these issues? That's a very good question, right? Because <laughs> I think you know, I think we have all this, uh, all had this uh, probably experience that we talk with friends and colleagues about. Oh, what are you doing? I'm working five G, and and then and then you get the idea that that's not top of on their mind, or or it's hard to understand how what why 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 this matters. In fact, right, in order to really benefit from that, I have to buy another new expensive phone. Why do I why do I want to do that? I I think at the end of the day, right. Um, well, I think we have to put in the in the broader context of of of, uh, and, and it comes down to those kind of difficult value discussions that we that we're having around uh, around um, you know not only five G but emerging critical critical um, uh, technologies. Um, uh, want do want to do the right things in this in this field? Um, I think that's part of that. 
so I think it's not particularly tangible. You know, we can always put look into the future and see how how this will enable new applications. Um, in fact, you can make a point around how COVID-19, you know, if think about if you would have not have all this technology in place, how how responses, the ability to work from home, um, international cooperation on vaccine development would have been probably close to impossible. So I think that's part of a part of a broader, you know, argument around how technology can help to um, address societal challenges. Um, how to break it down to the individual, I think that's actually a pretty tough one. Um, but I'm curious, maybe uh, Chen or Chen, I do it. Maybe you have a good, good, I'm curious if you have a good answer to that. Well, look, I think um, when it comes to looking at these, um, looking at these issues, um, given the way that technology is embedded into all of our lives, um, being able to actually harness the opportunity in a country like Australia, for example, good 5G means that you can access telehealth from um, a remote um, area and access good medical care that you might not otherwise be able to. Um, it, it enables you... Um, to get from A to B the most efficient, efficiently or to get your mail delivered. There's, I mean, there's so many different um, applications to this, but of course that doesn't, that isn't useful for us um, if it's not, um, if it isn't secure. Now, it doesn't mean um, necessarily that every single element of that needs to have 100% security. And I think you're absolutely right that 100% um, uh, security actually doesn't exist. So it's about um, pinpointing what are the things that we need to protect um, and to prioritise the protection of um, what are the pieces of critical infrastructure that um, all of the other pieces of critical infrastructure um, depend upon. And I, I think that's where the 5G conversation um, really um, become, comes in focus. Um, Jen, did you have anything you wanted to add there before I jump onto the next question? The only thing I'd add to that is, I guess, from an individual user perspective, there's also important considerations around things like privacy of data and sort of the ethical considerations that might go into the programming of certain technologies. So there are some additional considerations too, but I think that comes back to your point around how do we actually prioritise what's important for these technologies and focus on mitigating the most important risks. But from a citizen perspective, I imagine those issues are front and centre when it comes to some of these critical and emerging technologies. Yeah, I, I really Sorry. like both of you. I really like both of your answers a lot. You know, I think it's also now, now I remember, you know, I think in Australia, there was also quite a bit of a, a, a controversy about the health implication of, of 5G, right? So I think there is definitely kind of like uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, right, Australia had kind of a bit of a maybe a misinformation issue on on some of those things, or it was maybe more prominent, at least how it, how I, I was I was told compared to other countries uh, on the issue. Not that this did not happen elsewhere, anyways. But um, you know, and I think those are important aspects to address besides only security, kind of like the broader benefits uh, that that uh, not only 5G, but I think the entire set of of, uh, of these emerging technologies will bring in what 5G enables. Mm. Um, 
so uh, Andres, I have um, I, I'm waiting for more audience questions. Please, um, please throw them in. Um, but uh, whilst we whilst we wait for someone to type uh, madly, um, uh, I wanted to throw one question to you in terms of the norm setting conversation. This is obviously something very dear to my heart, having um, been involved in the conversations on responsible state behaviour at the United Nations. In those discussions, um, supply chain was actually one of the most sensitive issues. Um, and in fact, um, if you had have asked people at the start, the middle and the end, what they thought was going to be the issue that would prevent us from being able to reach consensus. Um, and, you know, these discussions involved the US, they involved China, they involved Russia. So you've got everyone at the table. Um, so when you when you talk about norm setting in that environment, is there something in particular that you think it's possible for us to do at that international norm setting level as distinct from, for example, you mentioned earlier the, the clean pipe um, initiative that the US um, had um, has uh, has kicked off, but also things like the Prague 5G conference and the proposals that they have there. And um, that, that, you know, I think there are different conversations to be had at the UN level when we have everyone involved um, and then um, smaller groups um, that are still inclusive and then your smaller coalitions like the Quad. Are there different things that you think we should be aiming for in each in each ones of those discussions? That's a very good question. Um, I, I think I think probably the answer is yes. Um, but I think it, you know, kind of like understanding how, where those process processes are and, and what could be a, a good tailored um, norm or or an action item that something then a group should work on. I think that figuring that out is probably kind of like part of the the the, the what it would be a good response here, right? Um, you know, I think I was surprised in a positive way that that we had supply chain addressed in those UN conversations. I think it showed, you know, kind of like a, a broader recognition. You know, I think it's, whenever ex experts talk about those things, um, um, and then you think, oh, we have been talking about this for years, but uh, nobody listens to us. But it's important. Why are you not listening? And then those things all of a sudden start uh, uh, popping up at certain places such as the UN process and things. Oh, oh! if those people uh, are paying attention, then I think that's probably a good thing. So I think the, 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 the need to raise awareness on those issues. You know, I remember um, when I first started working on this, uh, I think somewhere around 2016, uh, back at the East-West Institute, we had like this ICT buyer's guide that really tried to make the case why third-party risks are important, how they could be addressed. Um, I remember having had conversation with like large ICT companies who didn't feel like that should be part of uh, in the US NIST uh, cybersecurity framework that there should not be, you know, is already covered elsewhere. And so I was kind of, and I think we've come a, a long way in this conversation to actually point out third party risk as as an issue. There were times, and there was not that long ago where we didn't talk about that. So so I think um, uh, I think that's, that, that development is an important part. Um, Again, I think awareness in the UN is great. Um, when it comes to actual implementation, we all know, uh, and you probably know the best of all of us, how difficult it is to come to a point not only to agree or adapt kind of to some re consensus reports or a particular norm, but then kind of go to the next step and, and uh, have countries implement them or to adhere to those norms, right? And I think that's where other forests, um, um, the Quad among others could come in, come in and maybe, maybe kind of take 
uh, an aspect that has been agreed upon, such as the, the norms, and, and come up with concrete guidance how that could be done. I think that will be a, a great um, uh, that will be a great kind of contribution that the Quad could do with regards to those uh, UN cyber norms. But I think other industry associations, um, you know, norm settings, kind of like making sure this is tied together um, to some of those larger conversation, but also ensuring that that you know we don't try to solve the same problem multiple times in in hopefully incompatible ways, right? And so coming up with coordinating amongst those core organizations be important. Reciprocity of of certification, for example, you know, to speed up. Um, and security security certification of products and services, for example, would be another aspect that, that could be mentioned there. Um, I think it, to make the answer short, it really comes down to what 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 four are we talking about, and then come up with very concrete um, actions that they they could that they could undertake. Thanks, Andreas. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's um it's always going to be a difficult exercise to be able to get agreement to norms. And actually, um, you know, it, the most recent, for example, group of governmental experts um, on cyber issues at the UN um, agreed recommendations around supply chain that include things like um, legislative protections around privacy and data protection to um, Jen's point included um, uh, calls not to um, have harmful hidden functions, um, to have cybersecurity by design through the life cycle of a product as well. These are things that, you know, all countries can agree to, but then it's the question of well, how when it comes to implementation and when countries then implement that in a way um, that um, comes into some of those geopolitical divides and, and questions that we were talking about um, earlier, um, that's that's where uh, I think there's um, a, a lot of challenge. So I can see um, Will Stoltz has his hand up, but um, sorry, Will, just because this next, this question that we have um, here flows very neatly um, into the point we were just raising, I might just go to this question and then come to you, Will. So um, this is a, a question um, from Claire, uh, and she's asking, um, are there uh, any uh, examples in quad countries or elsewhere where you're seeing particularly successful 5G standards and frameworks um, being implemented? And I think that that goes to that point of we can agree at the high level, but how do we actually implement it? You know, that's a good question. So I think um, we probably have to clarify what we're talking about here, right? Um, there are, you know, some of those frameworks will be, you know, broader than just as 5G, but for example, in the US, kind of a, this a cybersecurity risk framework, right, and would adopt some of them, um, would address some of those issues in a very high level and then have like a range of, 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 of activities around that. Um, you know, I think the US, I'll bring this up as an example because I, I know this particularly well, is has, has undertaken a range of, of issues with, with pretty tight um, multi-stakeholder involvement, mostly mostly from industry, um, you know, among carriers, among technology providers, um, not, not, not only specific to 5G, but also ICT more broadly. Um, if it comes to, I think the challenge always is you know, as an observer, when it comes to deployment and, and how, um, you know, certain particular actors do those things, it's a little bit more complicated to get access to some of this information. And um, even kind of like getting a sense 
where the deployment, the current deployment of 5G is, is, is not that straightforward. Um, you know, you hear a lot of like uh, press releases, what, what's, what's all happening, what sounds good, uh, but then when it really comes down to uh, what does it mean for the users? This can be kind of kind of tricky to combine this this type of information. Or at least we, when we did this research and were looking into that, that was more difficult than expected, and um, um, which was a challenge. Uh, but um, you know, so I, unfortunately, I think to be sure, I don't have a particularly good answer to that. I think there's a lot of good case studies where different countries did things. Um, different companies have been put forward. Uh, some of those technologies implemented that. Um, you know, they, they are. They are there to use, um, um, but yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good, good answer to your question. Thanks, Andreas. Um, I think um, uh, given how much research, research you have done, that is um, a interesting that there is not that, that information available and perhaps a little bit concerning. Um, so, Will, um, we'll pass to you now to, uh, to put your question. Thanks, Joanna, and thanks all for a really fascinating uh, conversation this afternoon. Um, Andreas, I, I wanted to get your reaction to um, a kind of recent event in this space um, in relation to Australia. You might have seen um, the Telstra purchase of Digicel, the, the kind of big backbone of mobile connectivity in the Pacific region. I'm interested to get your reaction to this idea of quad countries, or in this case, at least Australia, um, kind of encouraging and using private industry in this way and whether you think um, the Quad is actually an entity to do this type of behaviour in a more coordinated fashion or whether there are perhaps risks in, you know, liberal democratic free market countries um, kind of leveraging big telecommunications providers in this way. Um, Telstra uh, DigiCell case, uh, you know, um, that was kind of interesting to hear, um, given given uh, kind of like some of the uh, current challenges or tension at play. It, it was not surprising that that um, you know Australia wanted to do something is in this space. Um, I could imagine that maybe other partners might have had conversations around that maybe Australia should do something. I don't know. That's just me speculating. Um, I, I could imagine that uh, given current tension in the Pacific. Um, having, uh, I think, the largest uh, mobile provider in the Pacific uh, uh, not go to uh, a Chinese uh, uh, company, uh, I, I think, seems seems to be something that governments do consider. And and uh, um, uh, you know, so I was not so kind of like reading about those. Kind of, I was not surprised that this came up as a policy decision to to pursue that. Uh, it would be interesting to see. You know, I think. Do we set the precedence for that emerging critical tech infrastructure that that something needs to be needs to be done about? Right. Um, I've also seen and I thought there was an interesting argument, um, uh, which was about um, uh, you know Australia being a, a fairly a, a liberal market economy. Um, but this is not. I think my understanding is this was not the first time that this happened. Right. It's like there is also the case of an undersea cable that Australia. I think in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, kind of um, did a similar transaction. Um, Australia started to um, um, re, um, I think reconfigure reconfigure some of the financing mechanisms around uh, around doing such types of transactions. Um, I, I think what I'm curious is about, you know, will there be will will there be more of that? I think that's one question. And then um, I think that a spot on good idea, you know, could the quad um, 
could the Quad um, uh, potentially, in coordination, pursue similar uh, similar activities uh, moving forward? I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I don't have a good answer to that. I think there's a lot of um, other you know kind of issues that need to be figured out. Who pays for what? Um, uh, who does who does the thing belong to at the very end? Who takes some responsibility? My understanding is that the uh, uh, that the the, the the Australian government, you know, provides financial support in that sense, but but the ownership is clearly clearly with Telstra. Um, I think there I think there's a lot of interesting questions around that, uh, and uh, but I think it's a it, it's 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 also this time and moment, right, that we have given given those tensions. Um, that this this seems to be from a national security point of view, kind of. Um, um, uh, an understandable move, whether or not it, make, it makes economic sense, uh, this, this might be might be a different assessment. Thanks, Andreas. Um, so I, I I think I'll just add one one additional consideration. There is you're absolutely right. Australia has been involved in the subsea cables um, back a couple of years, but actually we've had quite a long history of um, uh, being involved in the communication sector for many countries in the Pacific. For example, through satellite connectivity, etc. And there's actually a, a large development agenda there, as well as the economic and the national security considerations, which is something else that we um, are considering. And um, for those of you who who are interested uh, in um, the the question uh, around um, the uh, the infrastructure and and how we support the communications infrastructure? I would also um, commend to you the um, another one of the Quad papers, um, the Techno Diplomacy Strategy for Telecommunications in the Indo Pacific, um, which was uh, Lisa Curtis and Martin Rassa. Um, so that's another of this, this series of papers um, which talks about um, some of these issues that we've been discussing. Um, so encourage you to get on the NSC web site um, and uh, and have a look at those. Andreas, thank you so much. I'm going to pass now to Jenna, Jen to um, wrap up the, the session now, but it's been um, absolutely um, uh, fascinating. Thank you. Thanks so much, Johanna. So before we conclude today's really fascinating conversation, I wanted to warmly invite you to register for the final webinar that we have in the Quad Tech Network series, and that will be on biotechnology issues in the Indo-Pacific on the 15th of November from 6 till 7 p.m. So a perfect sort of pre-dinner conversation for you to get your teeth into. And that will be with Dirk van der Klee from the ANU, as well as Dr. Will Stoltz and myself. And the registration for that is still open on the National Security College website. Once again, I'd really like to thank both Andreas and Johanna as co-hosts of today's conversation and to Andreas and Trisha in particular for the really important contribution that they made through their paper to this series. We really look forward to seeing you again at future events and thank you so much for your engagement and questions throughout. Thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.